0: Uh, 1 John chapter 3, we're going to pick up with verses 4 to 10. Now, the thing about this is sometimes this, this has some of the most difficult verses to understand in the New Testament. You know, if we were with Thomas Jefferson, this would be one of the verses I'd like to cut out. Because I don't want, like to try to figure it out. Because I really, meh, where am I in this? And we'll talk, I'm going to tell you where I, I feel and where I've come to on a couple things here when we get to it. But some use this passage to say, if you're truly a Christian... You'll never sin. You'll never sin. And yet, have any of us sinned this week? I have. Wait, that makes me not a Christian. I get a little nervy. Well, we're going to talk about what that truly means and how it plays out and what John's trying to write for us to understand. Now, many of you may not remember Will Rogers, but he was a, uh, an actor, a vaudeville performer, a, a cowboy a humorist, a newspaper columnist, social commentator out of Oklahoma. He was a Cherokee, uh, born in 1879. He did the Lariat rope trick stuff. You've seen pictures of him, and you've probably heard his one-liners. He was one of those kind of guys that was best known for his humorous quotes. He could say stuff and have social commentary, and everyone would laugh, and he would zing everybody, and nobody would get mad. There would be no defriending, no... All the kind of stuff that happens today when somebody says something you don't like. But some of his quotes were like this. um, Advertising is the art of convincing people to spend their money they don't have for something they don't need. How true is that even today? This was in the early 1920s. I think he died in 34, 39, somewhere in there in a plane crash in Alaska. Anyway, he says good judgment comes from experience, and a lot of that comes from bad judgment. You had to ponder those a little bit. Well, he was born, like many others, in, uh, the eight, in 1879 and the 1800s. You didn't get birth certificates. And so as he was going to travel overseas and, and, and in and out of the country, he did a lot of things with the trick roping and the Wild West shows and some of those things. He needed a passport. So when he applied for the passport, he went up to the clerk and she said, uh, can I have your birth certificate? And he said, I don't have one. Well, and she says, I need a birth certificate in order to issue you a passport. And he asked, why? And she looked at him and said, so I have proof of your birth. And here's what he says. Well, I'm here, ain't I? And I'm thinking, pretty good answer. If I'm not here, I'm here. I was born. Many Christians struggle with the same thing about proof in our walk of faith. We want proof that we're saved. Where's the proof that God exists? Where's the proof that this is what it really is? You know, this week at camp's been a great week, having a bunch of kids, uh, a bunch of, of, of youth, a whole lot. It, it's a difference of changing and the changing of the guard Of as far as coaches. Those that used to come to camp as, as campers are now helping and working and, and coaching and, and leading groups and leading the next generation the next generation to Christ and, and mothering them, and taking care of them, and babying them, and all the things that go on at camp to to make it a successful camp experience. And as I watched that, I was reminded of how we—it's not about us. The legacy of the church is will outlive us forever because the church is not us. It's Jesus's church. And Jesus says, "My church will be here till I come back." And so when I read this, it it, it says to me some things that that I struggle with, and you will too, maybe. Maybe you won't. So what I'm going to ask you today is when you think about proof, am I saved? Proof, does it, how do I know this is real? I struggle with that. John writes in the letter we call First John, he writes this letter. He says, I write this that you may know you have eternal life. He writes it for assurance or reassurance for some folks that, who would doubt their inclusion in the family of God. In our scripture this morning that we're going to look at, um, how do we know we belong to the family of God? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. How do you know that you know? How do you know that you know? We're going to pick up uh, with verse 4 through 10. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 through 10. Well, here are three ways that I see in this passage here. First off, you've got to know that you're a sinner. You've got to know you're a sinner. Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness Sin is lawlessness. Now I'm using ESV; other translations may say the same thing, but he, but here's where it kind of gets a little iffy because practice of sinning is ESV is a good translation, I think, of the Greek. Uh, New American Standard says it different; King James says it different of uh, perfection. Sin not, sinneth not; those kind of things. But I'm reminded as I shared with some kids this week, you know, and even to all the all of our children uh, when we talked about. Uh, in the bible studies that i led that what it means about our story when i told them my story of when god became more than a word to me uh one of the verses i share with them is romans 3 23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god paul reminds us there's none of us that are righteous no not one our righteousness is as filthy rags before god you'll never get good enough to be saved That's the easy way. It's not good English, but it works. You'll never get good enough. So what happens? How can that happen? If I can't get good enough, oh my goodness, what happens? God's grace His mercy. You know, it's kind of like the pastor that uh, told his congregation that he was going to preach about the sin of lying. And he says, so next week I want you to to understand what I'm going to preach about, I want you to read Mark chapter 17. And so that, it kind of went out. So the next Sunday, as he prepared, got up to speak for his sermon, he, he said, okay, I want to see a show of hands. Who all read Mark 17? He said, there was a whole lot of hands that went up. And he said, who didn't read Mark 17? And there were a few hands that kind of went up feeling guilty. And he said, "And uh, by the way, Mark has only 16 chapters. Now for my sermon on lying. Do we do that? Sure we do. We know that we all sin. We all break God's law. We all miss the mark. But in order to know that you're saved, you must first know that you're a sinner. When I was a campus minister decades ago in the 80s, 1980s, some of you weren't even born. Most of you weren't even born, probably. uh, We had a young lady in our BSU that was as sweet as she could be. She did all the artwork for us. She was moral. She didn't drink. She didn't sleep around. She didn't cuss. She was the kind of kid that you would say, "I want that as my daughter," but she was as lost as a goose. Now I had a bunch of church kids that came to college that did drink, smoke, sleep around, cuss, do everything. Oh, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but blah blah, blah blah blah. And she would look at me and say, "But Pastor Glenn, I'm better. Why? Look at their life. What? What?" Why do I need Jesus? I tried my best to get her lost, to get her to see her lostness. I don't know if she ever did or not. I won't know probably this side of heaven. My prayer is that she finally could understand for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Don't judge yourself by other folks. We all fail. Judge yourself by Christ. He is the standard. And if you're better than him or equal to him, great. Great problem is none of us are he was all human and all God and none of you are all God or all, you may be all human but you're not all God so you know when I, I see that it speaks to my heart that we all are breaking God's law all people must recognize to seek help for their sinfulness in order to be saved in order to have that connection with God in order to have that relationship with God whatever words we want to use on that we know that we are a sinner in need of salvation That's what it tells us. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Okay, got it. We all sin. Then in verse five, here's the second thing I want you to see: know that Christ, know Christ in a saving manner. You you need to know Christ in a relationship. You need to know Christ in a saving manner. Look at verse five. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. The sin we have carries with it a penalty. Paul writes to, uh, in his letter to the church at Rome, he writes these words, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We have to pay something. We have sinned. It's a wage we earn because we've sinned, and the wage we get is we die. We're all dying. From the moment we take our first breath, we die. I've done... Funerals for babies that took one breath and died that didn't take a breath outside the womb. To a hundred and, I'm thinking a hundred and seven. I may, I can't remember, I think one might have been a hundred and twelve. Anyway, old centurions and everything in between in my 40 plus years of ministry. Even this week at camp, one of the youth from Lars Street that was kind of a marginal youth person drowned. I don't know if you guys figured that, what was going on at camp on Thursday young lady that drowned at Maryville was part of that. I think she came to camp as a kid. I I knew who she was. Uh, Marched her own drummer, a little different. But that affected things. 16-year-old, I believe. One of those freak things in the river over at Barnard. Things happen. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ in a saving manner? I'm not talking about head knowledge. I'm not talking about, yeah, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He lived a sinless life. Yeah, and the see, he was a carpenter. And he had brothers and sisters, and um, he called these guys out and told them to follow him, and he talked good stuff. I'm not talking about those kinds of things. I'm talking about do you know him as your Savior? Is he your friend? Is he the boss? Is he the Lord of your life? Is he, is he what brings you To move forward in life is he what drives your decisions that you make each and every day christ know christ in a saving manner the penalty for sin is death both physically and spiritually sin separates us from god and we are sinners saved by the grace of god through the death of jesus christ on the cross he died in our place now theologically if you want to play those games You know, the big fancy word, the theological word that we go to school to learn is substitutionary atonement, meaning somebody stood in my place. Somebody substituted for me. Somebody said, I will take Glenn's penalty. I will take your penalty. All of humanity. That's what Jesus said. He who knew no sin became sin, as the Scripture says. Jesus, the perfect human being, sinless Went to the cross to die because of me. Because of you, because of every human being that has lived, will live, or is living now. It is you. It is me. He hung on the cross because he loved us, because he wanted to be there in our place. Not because of the nails. You see, if he didn't do that, we could never come back to God and be Saved or connected with God in the way He wants us to be connected with Him. So I, I hear that. I see that. It's kind of like this. Let me give you a free gift idea. How many of you were here Mother's Day? Just raise your hand. How many of you women picked up a flower? How many women did not pick up a flower on Mother's Day? All right. How much were those flowers? Now, They are donated by one of our church families and their business, and I am so grateful for that. So it costs something to somebody. Did it cost our church anything? No, just a gift of love. Did it cost you anything? No. What did you have to do? Pick it up. I want a flower. I want to plant a flower. I'm going to put the flower out there. I'm going to make my yard pretty, flower bed pretty, whatever. You know, one of those things that Don't mow over or you'll be in trouble, you know. Those things that are out there, those flower things, beautiful. You know, they look pretty, but I'm glad I don't have to figure them out. But unless you picked it up out of your free will, you didn't get one. And if you didn't get one, you didn't get one. So, salvation is the same way. God lays it out just like a flower pot and says, hey, you want one of these? You want salvation? Here it is. Come get it. It's free. But you have to pick it up. You have to make the choice of it. Yes, it's free, but it costs somebody something. Those flowers are free to you, but it costs the greenhouse some money and work and time and prayer and water and all that good stuff. Dirt, seeds, right? It's free to you. Salvation is free through Christ, but what did salvation cost? God's only son. Perfect, sinless being for you and me. It hurt God so much when he poured the sin out upon Jesus, he turned his back. You ever thought about when Jesus cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? That's the moment the sin pours on him, I believe. And then he realizes and he says it's finished. And The Bible says he gives up his spirit. Wow. You know you're saved when you have a relationship with Christ. Because you take it and you know it. Now, here's the third and final thing I want you to notice this morning out of this passage. You will know that you are not saved... That you are not saved when you recognize this. Continual sin is a sign of, and I couldn't think of any words. I just said no salvation. Uh, this is called camp brain freeze. All right. Uh, you know, you work at camp all week, up early, late, up late, you know, that kind of stuff. And I was in Kansas City all day yesterday and up through the night waiting on Trey to get home. And all the kids. We've got all of our grandkids today. So I'm thinking, oh, great. I'm going to have every one of my grandkids to, and so I can have a nap this afternoon. And what does God say? <laughs> you just thought you were going to get a nap. Yeah, maybe one of them wants want to take a nap with Papa. Maybe, maybe that's what I ought to do. Hey, anybody want to take a nap with Papa in the chair? Please, come, sit. No. So I couldn't figure out a word, but you can figure out what that means. It's kind of a no salvation, non-salvation. It isn't there. It isn't real. If you continually sin. Now, what does that mean? Look at verse 6 through 10, and this is really kind of the crux. This is one of those tough passages of Scripture that's kind of hard to interpret because Bible scholars, will <laughs> great get minds, much smarter than me, struggle with this and have wholly different ideas. Here's what it says. and ESV puts it this way. I think ESV is probably the closest tr- English translation of what the Greek is saying. That's just me. NIV is kind of like this. King James is pretty good with it too. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But this is evident who are the children, by this, excuse me, by this is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice the righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Ouch. Whoa. Okay, wait a minute, Glenn. You just told us that we're all sinners in need of forgiveness. Now verse 6 says that after we're saved, we cannot sin. That's the way some translations, sinneth not. And there are some that would teach that we can arrive at perfect sinlessness in this world. And I ain't there. 60 years plus. Most everybody I've ever met. In fact, everybody I've ever met is there. Don't know how they get to that point. Scripture seems to point that way, but what does it really say? Really, John has two poles, two thoughts in this passage, in this whole thing. Remember, he's talking, and he's writing to the church here that they would understand the Gnostic influence and those that are, are twisting the truth, those that are saying, you can be perfect, you, you, know, you, you can arrive to this higher level level of consciousness that you don't have to worry about your physical body and you don't have to worry about your spiritual sinning because that's not really you, it's this up here, all those kinds of things. On the one hand, he references Christ's role in taking away our sins, stressing the difference between purity and righteousness of Christ and the sinfulness of the believer. Yeah, got it. On the other hand, he emphasizes the likeness between Christ and the Christian. All right. If this letter, which I believe it it is written to comfort us with the assurance of our salvation, this passage struggles, makes me struggle when I read it in multiple translations. Most Christians it does when they really read it with a deep trying, okay, God, what are you saying here? Not just a cursory reading. Christ is never hidden where he rules. If you're a Christian and he lives in your heart, it will show. The Holy Spirit's power is effective in our lives. Now, sometimes we block it up and keep it from showing awfully good. We try to paint it over, cover it up, and shove down every bit of light of God in our life that it just looks like a little crack instead of a bright light. We know we've sinned. You may be wrestling with sin that keeps you from, that keeps cropping up in your life, saying, God, how can I I be a Christian and I still think like this and I still do this and I still want to be that way? So what does this passage mean? Really, let me give you four different interpretations and, and really most interpretations from all the different commentaries, Bible scholars, they kind of fall under these four categories. What does this mean about sinneth not? Or as it says here, he who abides in him, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Keeps on sinning. And I, and I think that's a fairly good translation. Well, there's a position called the willful sin. It, it says, according to that interpretation, interpretation, the statement is referring to those who willfully and deliberately sin as opposed to involuntarily or unintended sins or errors. I think it's a weak argument, personally. That one's weak for me, okay? You can be on that one. That's cool. So that would say, if you willfully choose to sin, then you're lost. There are people that teach that, there are denominations that teach that. Using these verses, I think, nee, don't think that's one right. I, personally, I think that one's weak. You can choose. The other one is the ideal Christian position that that John's writing, and and those who hold this point of view as the text claims that a Christian does not sin, states what ought to be. This is what we should be. This is who we should be like. It's kind of like the goal that's out here, but you know, in reality, (laughs) it's not the character of all Christians. This is what it ought to be, but we know what really is. So here's where we want to be. We just keep striving towards that. Okay? Okay. We strive for the ideal even though we know we will not match it. We're better off trying and failing than if we had never tried at all. I, I can buy some of that. Uh, that doesn't fit my, my walk where I'm at. Okay? You can. And the third one was the new man position. Uh, I probably should have, did a sli- should have done a slide with these. But, uh, you know, or let me back up. Habitual sin position. I missed one there. Habitual sin position. According to the text, the text means we cannot adopt a lifestyle of willful, unrepentant sin. Now, by the way, the verbs in this passage are in a present tense in in the Greek. English is such a short language and kind of limited, you know. Um, It is. It's what I speak. I don't speak. I can read Greek and Hebrew a little bit. I don't speak Spanish, but you know one of the greatest worship services I ever attended was in Mexico City when I was in high school, when our band toured in Mexico. I understood absolutely nothing other than the Spirit of God was there, because it was pre-Vatican II, so the mass part was in Latin. I knew bits and pieces of that, but when they talked, it was in what? Spanish. So how would you like to be an English speaker, and you're sitting there, and you know two languages are going on, and neither one are your language? And you kind of know the tune of the song, but wait, where do those words come from? Well, wait a minute, and, and he's doing this, and you kind of get a gist of the Latin because you've learned some of that growing up. But God was there. Interesting thought, our language. So in the Greek, it's a lot clearer than it is in the English. And I think this habitual sin position, that the verbs that are present tense, in KJV Literally keep on sinning. And I think that's why ESV is a strong translation here, by the way. We will sin, but we never settle for a lifestyle that is characterized by sin. We're going to sin, but that is not who we are. That is not our lifestyle. Remember the context. Fake teachers claim that Christians do not sin or cannot sin, or they are free to sin. That's what these teachers were teaching them. It don't matter what you do in this world, this body, because you're already elevated to a new plane. Woo-hoo, let's check out. It's no great consequence what happens here. Some that take this position say it was an extreme situation that calls for extreme language. So scripture dispels the groundless teaching. That could be. In fact, as I was growing up, this is probably where I lean most of the time. As I've gotten older, I probably go to the fourth one. So, you know, your your theology can change, guys. It's okay. You know, this is not not a major thing, but I want you to understand what he's talking about here. The fourth position a lot of people hold is the new man position. And according to this view, the Scripture teaches that we are a new man, a new creation. Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians, when we're saved, we become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In Ephesians, he writes, and to put on the new self, Created after the likeness in God and true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4 And it also keeps with what he wrote to the Roman church in, in Romans chapter seven, 7, verse 15 and 17, when he says about himself. Paul says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Every one of us can relate to that. Dad God say, what did I just do? <coughs> I know better. Why? Why did I do that? Why did I think that? Why did I act like that? Why did I say that? And then, verse 17, he says, For now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Well, when I used to think you're just putting, you're blaming sin and not taking responsibility. But as I begin to understand about God's grace and growing in my faith, i probably lean in this one the most. Maybe right, maybe wrong. Doesn't matter. Doesn't change my salvation, but it gives me some comfort to know that when I sin, I can go back and say, hey God, you know, the old me's hanging out again. Take care of it. It's already forgiven. The Bible's very plain. Our, our sins on the cross, past, present, and future sins were forgiven when Jesus died. The sins of the kids of of my grandkids, my great-grandkids, and if I have great-great-grandkids, I, you know, I won't be here long enough to know that, but their sins will be forgiven. Do you realize that? Because of what Jesus did. Died once and for all. Took care of the problem if we trust and believe in him. That doesn't change. Didn't change in the 1900s. It won't change in the 2000s or if we make it to 3000. It won't change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible tells us that thing, and we believe it. You remember the old bumper sticker that says Christians are not perfect, just forgiven? That's true. But we are not forgiven to do what we want at any time, any way we want. John reminds us that we have a lifestyle that, if we have a lifestyle that shows no change, a life that is a, a life of continual life of sin, then we are not children of God. I can't know if you're saved or not, but I can be a fruit inspector. That's what we used to say growing up. There's a lot of truth to that. You only know if you're saved. Well, wait a minute. Because it's between you and God, it's a one-on-one thing. But The bottom line is, how do we deal with issues? How do we deal with problems? How do we view things? What, yeah, that, you know, that, whoa, it's like the pig. pig wallers in the, in the squalor, but the sheep jump out of the mud pit. So will Christians. Yeah, we mess up. And we will sin sometimes. But if our life shows no evidence of, of faith, we live a, a life of habitual rebellion and sin, and we say we're saved, guess what? You're wrong. Well, Scripture is very plain on that. And maybe it's us preachers that have confused folks on salvation. Salvation is free, and you don't have to do anything to, to it but to believe it and to receive it. But if you truly believe it and you truly receive it, there will be consequences in your life. There will be evidences in your life that will change, that will back it up. You'll want to follow him in believers' baptism. You'll want to share your faith. You'll want to, to get to know God. You'll want to read the Bible. You'll want to get around people that, that are teaching and talking about God. You'll want to walk a life that's pleasing to him. Doesn't mean we always do it. But you'll have that deep desire. And if you don't, and if you start feeling guilty because something you did, somebody asked you, you said, Brother Glenn, I feel so bad. How do I know I'm saved? I'm just so guilty. And and I feel like God's speaking to me about this. I said, hmm, do you think if you lost God and God wasn't there, he wouldn't be talking to you? Oh, yeah. When people say, eh, I got saved for a case of beer. had a kid told me that one time when we lived in our first mission church. Guarantee you where he fell on this thing because his life had no evidence of it. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, as verse 9 says. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Pretty straightforward for me. God's life in you. Some translate it God's seed, God's life. God sees the life of the Holy Spirit. If you're saved, the Holy Spirit will dwell inside of you, and you will not live in habitual sin. As we close out this passage, look at verse 10 again. But this it is evident that who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil, for whoever does not practice righteousness, is, for whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So here's the final thought: How do we know? How do we know? If you look at the slide up there, how do we know? We know by the life we live and our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how you can tell our love for God, His way of life, our love for our fellow believers. Those are ways you can know you're truly connected with Him in salvation. May God bless you as you continue to strive to walk wordly to this calling in your life. We're going to close out in prayer today, and then as boys get ready to fire up a video, I'm going to turn the lights off while you play the video. But this video is going to be our benediction here. It's on the last... It's on the little PowerPoint thing I gave you. It's on the Thumb drive. They were sleeping this morning. I should have talked a little longer. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for the blessings you give to us. And now, Lord, as we we think of fathers, you as our heavenly father. You as the one of the perfect father. Lord, today may we remember our fathers. If our fathers are alive and with us, maybe not be so pig headed we don't talk to them and tell them we appreciate them. And we love him. And we're thankful for him. Lord, those of us whose fathers have gone on, may we take time today to pause and reflect of what they taught us by action and by words, the good and the bad that made us who we are today in Jesus' name. So did you guys find the video?